Greetings, all you lovely listeners. This is Volts for June 28th, 2023. Making shipping fuel with off-grid renewables. I'm your host, David Roberts. Anthony Wang, a mechanical engineer by training, spent years as a researcher on hydrogen technologies. He worked with governments to develop policy and infrastructure plans. He was project manager on the EU's big hydrogen backbone project and with private companies like Total and Shell to develop hydrogen technology roadmaps. He has authored or co-authored several industry-defining reports on hydrogen and been cited in countless publications. A few years ago, he decided to throw his hat in the ring and try to actually build hydrogen projects in the real world. All his research and contacts in the energy world led him to a very specific and, to me, extremely intriguing business model. ET Fuels, the company he co-founded, develops projects that couple giant off-grid renewable energy installations with hydrogen electrolyzers. It then uses the resulting green hydrogen to synthesize carbon-neutral liquid fuels. First up is methanol for shipping, but the company plans to branch out into other e-fuels. This model somehow manages to implicate half the stuff I'm interested in these days. Green hydrogen, markets for hydrogen fuels, off-grid renewables, coupling renewables directly with industrial loads. So I was eager to talk with Wang about it. We dug into the limits of electrify everything, the difficulty of transporting hydrogen, and the economics of e-fuels, among many other things. This one gets fairly deep in the weeds, but if you find the real-world challenges of developing clean energy projects interesting, you don't want to miss it. All right, then, uh, with no further ado, Anthony Wang, welcome to Volts. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me, David. So you were, um, you know, sort of recommended to me as somebody who knows a lot about hydrogen, about uh, sort of green hydrogen, the markets. I know you've worked with public on um, policy roadmaps. I know you've worked with private companies on technology roadmaps. Uh, so I know you've given a lot of thought and sort of analysis to the green hydrogen phenomenon, the green hydrogen market, and you settled when you decided to start a company of your own. You co-founded this company, ET Fuels. You settled on a very particular business model, which I just find sort of fascinating as it as it sort of implicates half the things I'm interested in <laughs> these days in the energy world. So I wanted to just uh, uh, run through it with you and, and talk about why you made the choices you did and you know get into some of the bigger issues that way. So just for listeners' benefit, the idea here is you find a big piece of land somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. You build a bunch of renewable energy, mostly solar, maybe some wind. Instead of hooking the renewable energy up to a grid, you pipe it directly into electrolyzers and make green hydrogen out of it. And then instead of exporting the green hydrogen or selling the green hydrogen, you use the green hydrogen, combine it with CO2 to make methanol, basically, uh, carbon neutral methanol, which you are then going to sell to shipping companies. So that's a big 
puzzle. <laughs> That's a big puzzle with lots of pieces uh, put together. So I want to kind of start at the front end of it. My intuitive reaction to this is you're taking valuable renewable energy and then you're converting it to hydrogen. You lose a lot in that conversion. And then you convert it again to methanol and you lose a lot in that conversion as well. It sounds sort of inefficient. So the question comes up, like, why not just sell the renewable energy? So why off-grid in the first place? For us, um, obviously, it depends where you're talking in the world, right? So renewable energy, if you can get it connected to the grid, you're completely right. It's extremely valuable. I mean, you've seen what prices of power have done in, in the last couple of years um, in Europe and in the US. And if you can use it to electrify your vehicles or heat up a heat pump, that's you know a very good use of that renewable energy. That said, there are many places in the world where solar and wind on a levelized cost of production basis are the lowest cost sources of energy we have. And on top of that, most of these locations are not connected to grids. And so, you know, one thing, one question that always, always puzzled me a bit was everyone's talking about renewable energy getting cheaper and cheaper and being the lowest cost source there is. Mm. So why, why aren't we seeing that being reflected at all in, in the prices that we see A, on the wholesale market and be on, you know, ultimately on our bills at the end of the month. And, uh, you know, thought a lot about this and I'm, I'm not an economist, but it does seem to me that while we've got very good at producing renewable energy in a very cheap way, I'd argue, you know, it's the cheapest that we've got. We seem to have made a lot less progress in transporting, storing and, and balancing that renewable energy in a way that meets, you know, the consumer when they need it, um, where they need it. You know, we, we know also that the, the energy transition is, is going to put this massive strain on, on power grids. You know, today we, we transport about 20% of our final energy through the grid and in a fully decarbonized system. I mean, depending who you talk to, that number should be going up to 60, 70, 80%. Right. You know, we should, we should electrify as much as we can, but that also means that we need about three, four, you know, five times the number of cables, transformers and substations. And right now the grid is not, does not seem to be set up to deliver that. And so we wanted to marry that problem um, in a way with an opportunity that we saw in producing hydrogen. And obviously, when you know when you, you lose thirty percent through uh, energy conversion losses, that's a huge deal. If your power is super valuable, it's a lot less of a big deal when your power is you know virtually free, depending on on where you are. So, sort of to summarize that, renewable energy itself at the point of production is super cheap, but all these balance of system costs, mainly transmission and distribution, end up boosting the cost anyway. So your idea is just to use the cheap renewable energy and avoid all those other costs, basically. Just use the cheap energy directly and not have to pay those additional costs. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and cost is quite a simple way of capturing it, but there's lots of other things, right? And, and in projects, it's also time. You know, The biggest risk in developing renewable projects is often the getting the grid connection permit. You know, I think, um, you know, not to bash too much on the grids, I've got lots of good friends there, but the numbers speak for this. So if you look at the US, I think the Berkeley National Lab found there's, there's a two gigawatt backlog of, or 2000 gigawatts, sorry, of PV, wind and storage. Yeah, terawatts. Terawatts, exactly. <laughs> uh, which is like, you know, almost double of, of the installed capacity base today. And, and you see similar numbers in, in Europe and, you know, the cost of interconnection, you know, the deposits that developers are asked to put down are twice what they used to be. They can be, you know, almost as big as your capex or your solar project. So it's lots of things that have come together that are just making it very difficult to connect, you know, the phenomenal amounts of renewables that are available to the demand where it is. So I'm curious how you see this 
playing out, you know, because the enthusiasm is for electrifying everything. And as you say, that's going to mean like four or five X our grid capacity and nowhere that I know of is a shining example of how to build <laughs> grid capacity that much that fast. Uh, I don't know that anyone's doing it. So do you think that is going to be a serious constraint at the macro level on electrifying everything? And do you think that's going to push a lot of activities to this sort of off-grid model? We hope so. I mean, we, at ET Fields, we're definitely pushing it. Look, I've, I've got nothing against the, the electrify you know, narrative. I think it makes total sense. And where we can, we should. But the reality is that it's incredibly difficult. I mean, you know, we're finding this ourselves. We're trying to develop projects which are in the middle of nowhere. And even there, you know, permitting and consent can be a challenge. So imagine mm. building a transport cable that crosses the entire country, you know, these, these transmission highways. In Europe, we're talking about, you know, the, the European supergrid. Governments are trying to kind of coordinate about, you know, who gets what space in the North Sea. Um, we're talking about kind of hydrogen backbones that should cover the entire continent. And you can just see the political and practical implementation challenge of doing projects like that. I think, yeah. you know, I, I was working closely on a, on a hydrogen pipeline project between Spain and, and France. And <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, these countries, you know, putting a pipe through the Pyrenees, I think now they've landed on kind of putting it through the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea and said, you know, it, mm. and, you, know you see presidents shaking hands about, which pipelines should happen. And then it still takes, you know, eight, 10, 12 years before they're actually implemented. So I think it's, you know, a question of let's do everything as much as we can. And, and whichever one gets to market first should have some merit to that. Regular listeners will know that I'm sort of fascinated by this question. We had uh, John O'Donnell from Rondo, the heat battery company on, and that's sort of his thesis of his company is kind of the same logic that the grid constraints are going to push a lot of renewables off-grid, basically, they're going to be coupled directly with industrial applications and just skip all the grid stuff, which I find a fascinating trend. That's one of the reasons your kind of business model caught my eye. So then you're generating all this variable renewable energy, which, you know, notoriously comes and goes, waxes and wanes sort of out of your control, and you're using it to make green hydrogen. So part of the conventional wisdom that I always hear is that's a bad match because electrolyzers need to be run a lot of the time to pay off, basically, to be worth the investment. They need what's called a high capacity factor. And if they're sort of tied to variable renewables, how do you think about that problem? Have you thought about putting anything in between them? This is the heat battery question again. Have you thought about putting anything in between them to smooth the supply of the energy to the electrolyzers? Or is a lower capacity factor just a cost you think is worth bearing? Yeah, um, a really good question. Obviously, when, when we started the business, that was probably the first you know question that we looked into because obviously we're only doing this because we think that we have a commercially viable proposition and we can provide hydrogen at lower cost than, than what is currently available on the market. And I mean, fundamentally, when you look at this equation, you're kind of balancing three variables, right? You've got on the one hand, your cost of power. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, you've got the number of hours that you're, able to run your kit on that power, which obviously is lower with renewables. And the third is just the cost of the kit itself. So let's say the capex of the electrolyzer and, and the cost of you know, balancing the, the, the power. And when we look at you know, modeling this out across the year, there are places in, in, in Europe, in the world where your renewable energy wouldn't be producing often enough for this to be worth it. 
right? So if you only have a, a solar production model in, you know, the north of Europe, then it's probably not going to work. You know, you can't run your electrolyzer for a thousand hours a year and hope it to make money. <sighs> um, but there are also places where it definitely can work. And you're seeing lots of projects these days, which actually combine solar and wind together in these types of hybrid configurations. And that's useful one, because they're not entirely, I mean, so wind is a bit more expensive, but it runs a bit more often. But then on top of that, depending on where you are, and, and there are special deserts where this is particularly the case, uh, where the wind and solar production hours actually very, you know, anti-correlate very well, mm. where you essentially have solar during the day and then wind, which mainly blows at night, not exclusively, but mainly at night. Mm -hmm. And when you combine those two, you can get very, very steady profiles, you know, up to 5,500 hours a year of essentially base load production. And when you spread that across an electrolyzer, and especially, obviously, today, electrolyzers are still quite expensive, but going forward, their costs will come down. You'll see that the numbers actually pan out very well. And, you know, when we've done the math, you know, we, we come to conclusions where depending on, you know, the power that you're using, but if you're comparing a hybrid solar wind project in, let's say, you know, the deserts of Chile or, or in the Middle East or in Western Australia, you can easily get to production costs of hydrogen that are 40% you know, lower than if you were using grid-connected power, paying essentially wholesale prices in in Northern Europe. So that's on the economic side. Then, then there's, of course, the, the question around, you know, can the electrolyzer even run flexibly? Right. And this is a bit more of a technical question. Obviously, you've got different technologies. You've got PEM, so the, the proton membrane exchange electrolyzer, and you've got alkaline ones. PEM is more flexible, but even the, the, the latest kind of pressurized alkaline models are able to run flexibly. Depending on their, their ramp rate, the specific model, you, you may need to add a small battery in between. Mm. But in principle, you don't need to run, especially if you've got six, you know, 6,000 full load hours from your renewables. You're mainly looking at balancing on the kind of you know, second to minute level. And uh, the technologies that are on the market today can handle that. So you don't need uh, any additional storage. It's more of just a pure economic thing. If your power price is low enough and your hours are good enough, then you can make it work. Right. So two things. You go to places where a hybrid renewable system can actually reach relatively steady production. And then you go to places where the power is super, super cheap. So what about electrolyzers then? Let's talk about electrolyzers because you're saying you're going to produce green hydrogen that's cheaper than what's on the market. Is that purely because the power you're making it with is going to be cheaper? Is that the, or do, is there something about your electrolyzers that is special? Yeah, and just to clarify, so when we say our, our green hydrogen is cheaper, I'm comparing to other green hydrogen projects, not the, the, the fossil hydrogen projects that are... Of course. You know, hydrogen that's on the market. Brown so or yeah, exactly. gray or whatever the yeah. hell. Yeah, so that, that stuff's definitely cheaper at the moment. So for us, the innovation is not in the electrolyzer technology itself. We're not a, an equipment supplier or manufacturer with our own technology. Our development IP, I suppose, is in the integration of the different technologies. Mm -hmm. So we haven't really spoken about the, the methanol component. We'll get there. But what we essentially do is we, you know, we find the optimal end-to-end -end project configuration that makes the economics work you know, for the final off-taker. Because we, we start with what is the price that we need to hit for you know, our final product, which you know, is methanol we'll talk about, um, can be a bankable, commercially viable product. And then we work backwards. Mm. So then we, we reverse engineer, okay, what does that mean in terms of the electrolyzer size? What does that mean in terms of the you know, hydrogen storage size? What does that mean in terms of the solar to wind ratio? What does that mean in terms of the, the, the battery if you need to add one? And so what we've done is we've optimized that end-to-end. And uh, you know what you'll see is that you you might have to do some slightly unintuitive sizing decisions from an engineering perspective. So that's kind of where where our uh, you know 
added value sets and also just in terms of the development of those individual pieces of the project and, and pushing them forward at the same time. Yeah, I'm wondering how much now, because even if you have a hybrid r- renewable system, I'm wondering how much sort of overbuilding you do to try to boost that capacity factor. Like, are you are you overbuilding and throwing away a lot of power just because it's so cheap? Yeah, we do a little bit of that. So maybe a couple of things. So a typical project for us, I mean, what that looks like. So we've got, you know, we're actually developing um, in Europe and in the US. So in the US, uh, a site will be very big, 8,000 acres, which is, uh, you know, 8,000 football pitches, European ones. I think the American ones are are half the size. It's like 8,000. Anyway, you get the point. It's it's huge. And most of that's earmarked for onshore wind. So about 6,000 acres is is onshore. Um, Turbines are spaced far apart, so you need a lot of land. And the remaining 2,000 acres is a mix of solar PV and the process plant itself. And that will give you about, I mean, these are rough numbers, but about two to 300 megawatt of onshore wind, one to 200 megawatt of solar PV. You know, so you're looking at a combination of, let's say, 400 megawatts of renewables. Mm-hmm. And then we would probably put a, an electrolyzer that's around half the capacity next to that. So a 200 megawatt input electrolyzer. And that sounds like a very big delta, but actually, if you look at lots of the studies that, are, that have been done come to similar conclusions because you don't end up curtailing anywhere near half of the power. You know, you end up curtailing only a fraction of what you produce because there's only very few hours where both the solar and the wind are producing at peak. Right. Um, and so, you know, and, and maybe just to complete the, the picture of the project. So that produces about 20,000 tons of, of hydrogen a year, depending on your, your load factor, which is a lot of hydrogen. That's, uh, I think, uh, the equivalent of about, you know, 30 to 40,000 Tesla Model 3 batteries in a day that's getting produced. <laughs> so the electrolyzer part to you is mostly just a commodity at this point. Like, is that a, like when you're looking at big cost centers, like the big CapEx and OpEx costs, where are the big costs here? Like are the electrolyzers themselves a big cost center or is it all down to kind of the cost of the power? Is that the big, yeah. is that the biggest variable? It's about 50-50. I mean, for us, we actually have a, you know, we have a kind of a, a renewables plant or part and then a process part, and it's about 50-50 between the two. Uh, the electrolyzer representing the main component of the process part. We've been doing a lot of, um, say, electrolyzer shopping in the last couple of months, and you're probably, you know, wondering how that's going. I am quite curious of what you're yeah. seeing out there in the electrolyzer <laughs> land. Yeah. You know, the reality is no one has actually built and constructed a 200 megawatt electrolyzer um, you know, to date. Mm. And, and it's, it's not because electrolyzers are, are a, a risky technology. We've, you know, we've had them for hundreds of years, but at the scale that we're talking, you know, we haven't really got that much experience. Even the biggest technology OEMs don't. And so as much as there is a, you know, a big boom in the hydrogen space, I think for me personally, it's been quite a sobering experience, you know, being in the market, actually trying to procure these pieces of equipment. Because uh, <laughs> is the hype getting a little out ahead of where of where the market is? Obviously, the, the, there's the hype, and then there's the the reality of getting things done on the ground. I, it's not that I'm disillusioned by what I've seen. It's more that you just realize that there are so many practical implementation considerations that you haven't thought of, right? So, yeah. Well, one is on pricing. Obviously, because there's very little, you know, very few of these projects have happened. There's not that much price liquidity. And so people, no one really knows how much this stuff costs. I mean, not even the EPCs who are meant to build this really know. <laughs> right. So everyone's trying to figure it out. People are also aware that there are subsidies. So everyone's trying to make sure that, you know, they don't leave a penny on the table in terms of how they <laughs> price their, their kid. And obviously you can imagine if everyone does that, then your economics go out the window. <laughs> 
So that's on pricing and, and all the electrolyzer OEMs, you know, know the game and they're kind of, you know, looking to find a way to play into that. And then in terms of the actual technical and implementation challenges, I mean, there's just, ultimately, this is going to be a process plant, right? This project is going to look a bit like a refinery. That means that every single valve needs to be lined up. Every single power cable needs to be at the right voltage. And you just, especially in our case, because we're off grid, for example, you know, when, when you try to uh, run your entire renewables to electrolyzer without a, in the engineering terms, I, I think they, they call it like a clock. Like you don't have a, a base frequency that you can follow. Um, you end up having to create your own kind of grid stability. And that brings it with it a bunch of challenges around frequency, uh, you know, voltages, harmonics. Right. You're not getting any of those grid services. So yeah, you exactly. kind of have to do all that yourself. Yeah. So, you know, turbines, you know, usually they're connected to the grid. So they just follow the, the you know, the frequency of the grid. When, whereas when you don't have that, you need to create it yourself. And then your, your electrolyzer is there kind of disturbing it a bit because it's not entirely efficient. <laughs> um, and so there's lots of day to day engineering challenges that we, we need to overcome that I, I at least had not expected when we started this. Yeah, it does kind of seem like the mother of all optimization challenges you've taken on here. There's like so many variables moving at once. So you feed this cheap power into electrolyzers. And just one last question about electrolyzers, like just from looking around in the market and your general sense of things, are you anticipating or do you feel like the sort of market is anticipating substantial reduction in those costs or is that just kind of a, a fixed piece in the middle of this puzzle yeah good question obviously i i when when i, when I speak with uh, our suppliers i always ask them because i'm i'm very you know i, I hope that <laughs> right. the prices that they give me today are not reflective of where they <laughs> hope or think that it'll you know end up in the future and so today they're obviously not pricing in that cost reduction that said that you know all of them are, are very optimistic about the price reduction and usually the especially on the pem side i mean when you talk to the the pem electrolyzer suppliers they tell you that the reason that they you know they they chose that technology is because it just has a lot more cost reduction potential you know and you've got lots of levers there right you've got the the, the raw materials themselves you know you know switching from the the very precious ones to the slightly more common ones and that'll obviously reduce the cost then the second one is um purely in terms of the design so lots of the OEMs are trying to figure out ways to modularize not just the stacks and the core kind of arrays of the electrolyzer, so the area where the hydrogen gets produced, but also the balance of system and, and the balance around that stack. So the purifiers, the transformers, the rectifiers. Right. All that stuff is still pretty bespoke at this point, right, for, for big electrolyzers? Yeah, yeah, it is. And, uh, and, and this is where the, the traditional OEM kind of equipment manufacturing model slightly overlaps with what traditionally uh, an engineering company would, would have done. So the big EPCs who would design stuff and, and engineer stuff to order rather than having prefabricated productized modules. But what you're seeing is that you know, the intent is for electrolyzers to really follow what wind and solar have done. Where in the future, if you need an electrolyzer project, you're not having to engineer, you know, for a year to find the right, you know, size of uh, purifying tank, but you can just call up uh, an OEM and they'll they'll deliver you something, you know, that essentially comes out of a box. I mean, I'm simplifying, but that's that's the idea. Yeah, something containerized. Yeah, exactly. And if that if those cost drops manifest, will that be a substantial piece of making this kind of model viable? in more places? In other words, is that a big lever or like how big is that electrolyzer cost relative to say the renewables on one side and the, and the methanol on the other? Yeah. So, I mean, we have our, our projections for this, obviously. So we, you know, we have our power part and our electrolyzer part. Obviously we are more optimistic about the electrolyzer part coming down further. We don't expect renewable. I mean, mm. that may be, 
you know, perovskite solar panels, you may have some thoughts on that, um, David, but, you know, <laughs> on, renew on the renewable side, you know, things will happen as they do. On the electrolyzer side, obviously, this is a huge part because when you think about that equation of, you know, cost of power, cost of the electrolyzer, and then the number of hours, as you reduce the fixed cost of your electrolyzer, the incremental impact of your cheap power just becomes even greater. Right. So, you know, all the benefits that you get from going to the cheapest places in the world. So, you know, your, your windy deserts just get magnified and you, would, you will get to a point where, you know, whereas today, you know, you use your power, let's say it's 50 kilowatt hours per kilogram of power that you need to make hydrogen. That efficiency conversion factor, when you reduce the cost of the electrolyzer, it will it'll make a huge difference to the economics. So, so for sure, we're, we're very bullish on that. And we're hoping that uh, those costs come down. But, you know, we're not relying on it. And our first project probably won't, uh, you know, be benefiting from a lot of those cost reductions. Right, right. And of course, there's also just scale and, and learning. Yeah, of course. You know, just the, the natural cost declines that come with more people buying more electrolyzers, which I assume is going to be happening uh, uh, soon. So then you synthesize this green hydrogen. And then then the question is, why not just sell the hydrogen? Why not sell the green hydrogen? It's pretty precious these days. A lot of people want it. Why not pipe or truck or however one carries hydrogen to customers? Why, why the third step? When we started this business, we probably thought of two main challenges. One was you know, excessive production costs. And then the second was kind of the midstream transport challenges. And on the, the production costs, we've kind of covered that, but to the midstream challenges. So Maybe just as a bit of context, I spent my entire career in, in hydrogen and green molecules, you know, working with power utilities, oil and gas companies. Right. And at one point, I actually led a project called the European Hydrogen Backbone, um, which was uh, an initiative by, you know, the gas TSOs, the pipeline network operators in Europe, to try to repurpose their pipelines to from natural gas to hydrogen. And um, so I did a lot of, you know, I'm a, a mechanical engineer by training. I, I spent a lot of time doing hydraulic modeling of pipelines and compressors at the time. <laughs> and... Uh, I learned quite quickly that hydrogen is um, it's, it's a relatively leaky gas. It's uh, not the easiest to move around. And it's also the reason that we don't really transport or store it at, at large scale today. Uh, it's not that you can't do it, you can, but the economics and the practical challenge, you know, details of implementing it become quite challenging. And so... Yeah, just to pause there, since you were just talking about having studied it, because I'm, I'm really interested in, in this question. When, when gas infrastructure companies talk about this, like I've seen... Two things. One, I've seen mixing some hydrogen in, right, just so, so sort of lower the carbon intensity. You know, that's one. And then there's discussion of just turning the infrastructure over to hydrogen entirely. And my question is just from an engineering standpoint, are those pipes ready for hydrogen? It seems like hydrogen is a lot harder to hold on to <laughs> than natural gas. And there's a, thousands of miles of these pipes. Are they just going to work? Or is this going to be a thing where you have to go through the whole system and you know sort of fortify it yes yeah, it's, it's a good question and we just on on blending and repurposing so in europe the, the the discussion is mainly on repurposing so fully converting not blending uh hydrogen into into gas pipelines i mean my you know i think it, it's a bit depending on the, the political environment where you are in europe blending is not really seen as a, as a viable solution the energy impact is, is tiny because hydrogen is less dense than natural gas so when you blend like 10 percent, i mean it's only a fraction of that on an energy basis Yes, I mean, I think it's just a political fig leaf here. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sure it'll, it'll it'll go away once 
the practical challenges become more clear here yeah. too, I think. But at least right now, natural gas companies are kind of waving it around as one of their, you know, please don't kill us ideas. Yeah. And I mean, on, on so that's on, on blending, just, just to clarify. And then on the technical viability of repurposing, I mean, in Europe, they've actually done a lot of work on this and uh, a lot of good work. I mean, the, the, the German TSOs have just had the NVGL, very, you know, reputable engineering company, look at this. And they essentially conclude that, and, and just on this, you, you do need to actually go through each single pipe and look at whether it's ready or not. Yeah. So that's, it's, it does take a lot of you know, work to do. But uh, in, in Europe, the pipelines are in, in a very good state and you can repurpose them, but it, it will come at a cost. Mainly, um, at least currently, with the way that the codes are set up is that you need to derate them, which means that whatever pressure you were operating the natural gas pipeline at, if you want to operate it for purely hydrogen, under the current safety standards, you have to lower the pressure. And when you look at the the hydraulics of uh, of hydrogen, you really don't want to be piping it at low pressure because it just becomes very expensive. And so, you know, on a per kilometer or mile transported per megawatt hour, it becomes quite expensive. It's just more manageable at at high pressure. Is that the well? You, you want to store it at high. Pr- so, because hydrogen is a lot less uh, energy dense than natural gas, to get the same energy content throughput, right. you need to compress it more and, and um, transport it at much higher velocities. So, when you don't do that, you end up kind of like transporting hydrogen, but very slowly. It's a bit like a congested uh, motorway. <laughs> um, and so in terms of value for money, obviously you, you get a lot less throughput and capacity tr- of transport. That's the main reason. Do you think, I mean, in Europe, I suppose is probably the most promising place of anywhere, that this is actually going to happen on a timeline that is meaningful or alternatively are a lot of green hydrogen projects going to end up doing what you're doing, which is basically being off the hydrogen grid, you know, converting hydrogen before you ship it out. I'm sure there'll be some of both, but do you have, how bullish are you on hydrogen infrastructure generally, Uh, you know, pipeline infrastructure? Well, we've not bet our company on it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that said, look, I mean, I I wish them the best, right? Like obviously it's a hugely ambitious project and, and I think that they're making progress, but ultimately, you know, I wouldn't want to, you know, for our projects and the ones that we're trying to, you know, raise financing for, the argument that you've got a business case because five, eight, ten years down the line, there may be a hydrogen pipeline that comes in. <laughs> and it's the same for for CO2 infrastructure, really. I mean, it's just not going to fly when it when it comes to raising debt financing for a project of, of this size. And there's no practical way for you to build a pipeline, even if you wanted to. So... Are there even alternative ways of, of transporting green hydrogen that are practical at all? Or is it pipelines or nothing? At the scale that we're talking, no. I mean, so dr- hydrogen is already transported in, in, in trucks and, you know, you can put it in tanks and stuff. And that's usually compressed. You could liquefy it as well, right. but that's even more energy lossy. You end up having to compress it. So you pay for the compressors, which are expensive and or the liquefaction. And then it's, again, not very dense. So, so you end up having to pay a lot for the transport itself. And at the scale that we're talking, you know, 20,000 tons a year, that's not something that you would want to be trucking around. Also, from a safety perspective, I'm sure that's not not ideal. And and lots of you know, <laughs> local authorities would not be very happy with that. Yeah, that's a lot of trucks. Yeah. So it's just not practical, basically, at this point, to build green hydrogen out in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> where, where 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 the renewables are good, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's also why I think you know today most of the hydrogen projects that, that are actually getting somewhere and having traction are you know, the ones that are near, you know, industrial clusters and, and byports and, you know, next to an existing refinery, which makes total sense, right? Decarbonize the existing hydrogen that you have. 
but that's not going to cut it when you're trying to you know integrate renewables from the best regions uh, into where the demand sinks are. Right. Yeah. So are there? I mean, are there even exclusively hydrogen pipelines now? Is there much of that infrastructure now? So it does exist. So there, there is what, what's already available, and there are industrial clusters, you know, and and there are pure hydrogen pipelines. They're ma- mainly operated by the the industrial gas companies, so the Air Liquides, the Air Products of the world. Mm. Um, but these tend to be quite small. So these are 10, 20 inch pipelines that aren't meant to transport across long distances. These are mainly pipes to you know bring it from one side of the industrial site to the other, or as a as a as a backup. I mean, they work. They're, they're totally you know safe, and and people have experience building them. But at the scale that the, the natural gas pipeline companies are thinking, which is like, you know, 48 inch, huge, you know, cross country type pipelines, we don't have anything at scale or, or that, that's commercially kind of running. But the TSOs, especially in Europe, are running pilots and trials. And I think there's one connecting Germany and France. There's a bunch of projects uh, in the Netherlands. I know that the Dutch TSO is, is very active on this. So there's definitely stuff coming. But I mean, as to when and where exactly it'll be, you know, up and running, I don't know. Right, and and I'm thinking of the U.S. where we have this huge hydrogen hub program. I'm sure you're familiar with it. The, you know, it's a similar idea of building these huge industrial clusters. And I guess we're just going to have to build pipelines for all those in the U.S. because there's not. Yeah, I'm sort of curious about site selection for those too. Yeah, I mean, as a as a principle, I mean, the re- so it's very difficult as an individual project developer to make a pipeline like this work. I mean, it really need, requires like you know, everyone to come together and the stars to align. Mm-hmm. And then you often need, you know, this is why these companies are typically regulated usually is because that's the only way to, to finance it. And so I know we've looked at, you know, for example, using pipeline transport and as an individual company, there's no business case for building a pipe to just for your own uses. Um, it, it would have to be because you pull into it with, uh, you know, other producers and, and you know, off takers. A little coordinated industrial policy to build that infrastructure. So you make the green hydrogen, and then you combine the green hydrogen with CO2, basically, to make methanol. So my first question about that is, where do you get the CO2? Because you've dodged the importing and exporting electricity problem. You've dodged the importing and exporting green hydrogen problem. But now you've got an importing CO2 problem. And and I guess my question is, how big of a problem is that? How available is CO2? How easy is it? to get it where you need it. Yeah. When we looked at this, it was like, we, we kind of put the, the main energy, you know, carriers and commodities on, on a, we stack rank them, you know, electricity, hydrogen, CO2, methanol, which one would you rather transport and which one would you rather store? Right. And I, I kind of, where you end up is you really don't want to transport electricity if you've not got a, an existing cable network. You don't really want to transport hydrogen. CO2 is, is, is a bit easier. I mean, it's still not ideal. It's an industrial gas. You need to liquefy it, but it's, it's better than hydrogen, much better. But, you know, the best thing to transport and store is methanol mm-hmm. because it's liquid at room temperature. So what we try to do is we try to bring everything into our site and then make methanol there and then ultimately transport the methanol out to, you know, to a port. Um, and on the CO2, so we have two options, really. Um, one is to to work with industrial point sources. And we try to, you know, uh, work with companies who have either unavoidable process emissions, so cement companies or biogenic uh, sources of, uh, you know, industrial CO2. So pulp and paper. So this is carbon capture you're talking about, CCS. Yeah. So this is this is uh, carbon captured. Is there enough of that to? <laughs> is there enough of that to supply you? So uh, obviously we've got quite a big uh, carbon CO two supply problem. So you know, fr- from an availability in the flue gases for sure. Obviously, I think you're you're asking about the carbon capture itself. 
Right. Is, is enough being captured to supply a, a substantial market? Interestingly for us, you know, when we started this, you know, we looked at the, the market and said, okay, very few are actually capturing the carbon. Yeah. But when we spoke to a lot of these um, CO2, you know, potential CO2 capture companies and, and suppliers, to our surprise, lots of them already had been doing, you know, lots of engineering study and were very keen to implement the technology. The problem for them is they had nothing to do with the CO2. Interesting. For a cement company, especially the ones that we spoke to in Europe, they're under such immense pressure with the EUTS, the, the European Carbon Cap and Trade System, you know, where they're essentially, you know, once that's in full swing, their product price doubles because it's, you know, one ton of CO2 per ton of cement. So, and then, you know, cement sells for 50 euro per ton. So, right. so you can do the math, right? So for them, it was, uh, they had to do something. So they've been studying this and, and looking to pull the trigger on some investment decisions. I thought there were industrial uses of CO2. I thought that was a, yeah. I thought there was a market there. Yeah, yeah. So there is. So, so CO2 is already used today for um, greenhouses, um, but at, at very small scale. And usually the CO2 is not coming from uh, big industrial point sources, although there are some. So there's uh, some ammonia plants that, that, that already capture CO2. So that's one is on the industrial point source. The other source that, that we're, we think is a very good option and where we have uh, also discussions is with um, biomass, often anaerobic digestion. Mm, so yeah. if you look at RNG, what you have actually is a, a very pure source of CO2 because in the process of making RNG, what you do is you essentially purify RNG from biogas. And biogas is about 50% RNG and 50% CO2. So in the process of purifying RNG, you actually inadvertently purify CO2. Um, <laughs> but because there is no offtake for it, the CO2 is currently vented. It's not a, Ugh. people don't make a big deal out of it because it's, it's biogenic CO2, right? Because it comes from, you know, dairy manure or yeah, but agricultural still. residue, but it's still, right? It's, it's, it's CO2 that's vented into the atmosphere, which we could, at that point, you're not really talking about carbon capture, right? It's just connecting it to a pipe because it's already pure. Right. Um, you don't need to scrub it or, or clean it. Uh, and that CO2 is a, is a very good source for us because A, it's, you know, uh, very, very pure. So it's cheap and B, it's obviously it's biogenic. Well, if they were going to throw it away... <laughs> if you hadn't come along, I would imagine they're willing to sell it to you quite cheaply. Yeah, exactly. So in terms of just, you know, sort of absolute numbers, you're not worried about supply of CO2? You think you have enough CO2 to go on for a while or or, or what's your outlook on that? Yeah. So, I mean, just to give you an example, right, we have an agreement uh, with Semex, a major cement company, and their cement plant produces 450,000 tons of CO2. And one of our projects uh, takes, uh, you know, 150,000. Mm. So three of our projects are needed to decarbonize one cement plant, just to give you a sense of the scale. And then, and then you know, these guys have, you know, tens of these <laughs> around the world, right. and that's just one company. So in, in terms of scale, we're, we're not too worried about the CO2. Right. So in terms of its availability, like in general, clearly there's a lot of it. But in terms of the mechanics of getting it to you, that's not a bottleneck at all? Like, how does it come to you, by the way? Does it come to you in a truck or? So we use a combination of rail and truck. So both CO2 and methanol, um, we, we rail and truck. Typically, what we find is that actually the, the CO2 producers or industrial facilities are, again, close to ports, you know, where traditional industries are. And so what we end up doing is we, we use the same infrastructure, so the same rails and same train, rail cars and uh, trucks to import the CO2 and then export the methanol. And it's a similar principle where we use tankers. So right. you liquefy the CO2 put it on a train, and then, you know, the methanol is already liquid and, and you export it out. And so that infrastructure is or all exists, and uh, it's just a matter of connecting to the right um, infrastructure. And to be clear, you're only, you intend to only use 
captured CO2, not like natural CO2 from underground because it's only, you know, your sort of process is only carbon neutral if you're using the carbon that's been captured somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's lots of debate and discussion about what exactly is good CO2. Uh, yeah. Maybe that's a rabbit hole that we don't have time to, to dive into. Have they made up a bunch of colors for that yet? Or, or? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they're getting to that stage. So in Europe, they call it biogenic CO2, which uh, you know, ultimately uh, means that it has to be you know, CO2 with a short uh, cycle. So it can't be you know, CO2 that's from the, from the ground, basically. Right. But obviously, you know, even with things like uh, processed CO2, you can argue, you know, if you know, how green is that compared to if it was from agricultural residue? But then you can argue that some of the, the, the biomass that's being used today for, for power and heat production from wood in the Amazon forest isn't great either. So, you know, it, it's, it's a pretty big, uh, big topic. Or direct air capture. Have you, uh, I mean, is direct air capture even enough, enough of a thing for you to have thought about it? Or is that still just a gleam in somebody's eye, more or less market-wise? Yeah, it's it's not competitive at the moment. So obviously, for us, it would it, it's it'll be an option in the future. Today, there is not nearly enough uh, scale, and it's not competitive enough for us to consider it. But I mean, I'm definitely keeping a close eye on it. But for now, we stick to the industrial point sources. Obviously, it would take out a lot of the the transport, you know, considerations because we could power the direct air capture with our own renewables. So we could just put everything in the same location. Yeah, you could make your own CO two. Yeah, exactly. That would add another piece to the optimization puzzle. Yeah. You're gonna need some you're gonna have to bring AI in to deal with all this. So, you know, I think my my knowledge of e-fuels is pretty sketchy, as I think most people's are. Uh, but my understanding is that if you have hydrogen and CO2, there's a number of different fuels you can make. So of all the sort of possible fuel choices, why methanol? Is it is it easier process-wise to make it or is it something about the market for it is better or what are those sort of considerations? Yeah, for sure. So I mean, obviously we had to pick one. I mean, we, we looked at the, the hydrogen market and if you look at where, you know, most experts think hydrogen will be used uh, today and, and, and likely in the future, it's mainly as a feedstock. So it's for, you know, ammonia, methanol, steel and sustainable aviation fuel, SAF. And so those are the right. main kind of derivatives that we considered. Um, obviously, we looked at the technical side. So we've talked a bit about the transport options and, and methanol kind of comes out on top there. Ammonia, better than hydrogen, but still quite a toxic uh, gas as well. But so we had to pick one to start with for our first project. But I, I would like to add, you know, we're called ET fuels, not ET green methanol for, for a reason. <laughs> uh, not only because the latter is not very catchy, but also because we're, you know, we see our off-grid production model as a way to scale into a multi-fuel uh, future. But for our first one, we, we chose methanol, again, partially for technical reasons, but also part of it was just timing, because this was around the time that the big Danish shipping company called Maersk made a huge announcement that they uh, essentially committed to methanol as their decarbonization fuel of choice. And they had put in an order for eight methanol-fueled vessels at the time. This was a couple of years ago. Obviously, that number of methanol ship orders has grown exponentially since then. Last I checked, in the first half of 2023, methanol vessel orders represented 62% of the order book, outstripping all other fuel types. And so, for us, the you know the, the message from the shipping sector was clear: if if we're going to decarbonize and do anything in the next 10 years, it has to be methanol because the ammonia engines just aren't ready yet. Um, so that was you know quite an obvious one for us. And then uh, you know on, on top of that, methanol is already you know an existing market of 100 million tons a year. Uh, used as a chemical feedstock for you know various plastics and chemical products so so you know that that's kind of the main reason that we went with that fuel so you chose methanol because it's easy to 
transport at room temperature, and there's a relatively guaranteed market for it. But you think the model, there's nothing about the model that's going to prevent you from moving into other kinds of e-fuels? Yeah, exactly. I think one of the reasons uh, the model is attractive, the off-grid model, is because so much of the cost and uh, learnings are, are applicable to other fuels as well. So obviously the renewables is the same. The hydrogen production is the same. And this is you know the, the notion of hydrogen as this platform chemical. And then the final part is, you know, depending on which fuel you go with, is, is 15, 25% of the total capex. Uh, um, but you could have a train for ammonia. You could have one for methanol. You could even have one for uh, e-methane, which some, some people are doing, which is kind of ERNG. And so for us, it's, uh, you know, a very, obviously we, we, we bet on methanol as our first, you know, we think the market's ready there, but ultimately ammonia might have a, a big future in shipping as well. And so, and, and ammonia doesn't have the CO2 problem. So for us, it's, uh, it's a really good way to kind of keep our options open. Is like uh, making methanol out of hydrogen substantially more or less expensive than making ammonia out of it or, or, or methane? Are there substantial cost differences in that last piece of the puzzle? So the main difference is they're all a bit different. So obviously ammonia, the big benefit is that you don't need CO2. So whatever you were paying for the CO2, you're now no longer paying for. So what is, I mean, <laughs> betraying some rank ignorance here, but how on earth do you make hydrogen into ammonia? Uh, you, you combine it with nitrogen. Oh. So you, you, yeah, so, so you take nitrogen out of the air, so you purify nitrogen, and then, uh, and then you, you run it through a reactor. It's a similar type of you know, synthesis reactor where you basically run your gases at a certain temperature through a, you know, over a catalyst. So, so for ammonia, it's called the Haber-Bosch reaction. For E-methane, it's called the, the Sabatier reaction. I think the methanol reaction doesn't have a name, but they all have similar principles, which is you put it into a chemical reactor, hydrogen plus some, some other compound. Right. So it's not, it's not. No, it's, it's, it's very similar. I mean, there, there are obviously some technical, like detailed process differences. So ammonia, in terms of reaction temperature, in terms of how well it uh, operates under fluctuating load. So all of these processes, whereas the electrolyzer is very flexible, most of these chemical reaction um, kind of chemical plants are a lot less flexible because you need to maintain the temperature and the pressure. And it's much more like a refinery than, a, than, a, than an electrical kind of process. And then for, uh, for methane, you know, when, when you're obviously methanol, the last step is distillation where you have to separate the methanol from the water. Whereas with methane, you're separating a gas from water. So there, there are some kind of nuanced differences. Um, but in terms of the big picture, I mean, your renewables is the same, your hydrogen is the same. Right. And the last 20%, you know, you can kind of flex that if you need to. So in terms of carbon neutral methanol, for which there is this sort of nascent market just emerging, these, these shipping companies just sort of getting into this, are there... Lots of competitors. <laughs> Do we know? I mean, is there a good sense yet, like what it ought to cost? Is there, you know, it's, I guess it's far from commoditized at this point, but is it, it, how mature is that final market? Or is this sort of like everybody's figuring this out as they go? Probably more the latter. I mean, there are definitely competitors. I'd say most e-fuel announcements you see are probably around ammonia mm. because it's just slightly easier because you don't have to source CO2, which is challenge so for us it's a, it's a competitive advantage i think for us that we we know how to source co2 and we know our way around that market on your question around pricing so of course people are figuring it out there are you know, a couple of pilot plans there's a few that have just started kind of just taken an fid or set has just bought one in sweden where they're they've started uh, construction but they aren't producing yet so no one really knows how much it's going to cost until it's operational Obviously, we know today we would be producing at a price premium to fossil methanol, but that'll be the benchmark is, you know, how, how many times more 
expensive are you compared to either fossil methanol or the fuel that you're replacing? So in our case, it will be fuel oil for shipping. Yeah, I'm guessing you're a lot more expensive than fuel oil at this point. Yeah, so so at this point, we're, we're significantly more expensive. Um, obviously, you know, what gives us comfort is that we're, well, one is the, the cost reduction trajectory of the technologies and, and the learning that, that we think we'll, we'll gain. And two is our, our relative cost differential against our direct competitors, which we see as green methanol, right? So we don't think we will be directly competing with fuel oil because, you know, one, you know, obviously from a regulatory perspective, those get treated very differently and all the incentives that you would that a shipping company, especially you know in Europe, in, in the US, you've got the IRA. In Europe, there's lots of incentives for fuel switching, uh, demand side kind of quotas and, and and ways to benefit. So you only get those if you're decarbonized fuel. And for us, I mean, what gives us comfort is not so much the comparison to fuel oil, but the comparison to other green methanol projects. And for us, the the off grid nature gives us this competitive pricing advantage because of our our cheaper power. And that's what you know allows me to sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> well. One question I have is, what counts exactly as carbon neutral methanol? Because as Volt's listeners know, because they listen to the hydrogen tax credit episode, the question of what is the carbon intensity of your hydrogen is far from straightforward. (laughs) And there's a lot of debate now about whether to require it to be off-grid or or exactly how to measure the cleanness of the electricity going into it, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very complicated debate here in the US. I'm sure you're very familiar with it over in Europe too. You are very clearly making carbon-free hydrogen because (laughs) nothing's more additional than renewables that you are building yourself to attach to your electrolyzers, right? So you clearly uh, uh, pass the bar, but is that same debate live in Europe? Because, you know, if people can use cheaper grid renewables, I don't know, maybe that actually wouldn't give them a cost advantage. I don't know. But like, is there debate right now over what counts as e-methanol? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and really good point on the additionality. I, I hadn't mentioned this. Thanks, David. I mean, it's a big part for why we've chosen this model as well. You know, it's the cost, it's the scale, and it's the additionality. On the uh, debate around what is green methanol, so for sure, I think in, in the US, it's a bit of a different discussion. There's not really so much a definition of what is green methanol because it's more, you know, you, you make it compete with fossil methanols through the IRA, um, through the tax credit. In, in Europe, we've just had a big legislation passed called the Delegated Act for Renewable Fuels of, of Non-Biological Origin, Anyway, lots of uh, rules kind of were, were described in that. One is for green hydrogen, which is the one that you talked about, which I think mm-hmm. is the, the similar discussion in the States around additionality, temporal correlation, um, geographical correlation, which you know we, we comply with. And the second one is around you know, CO2, you know, essentially how you carbon account for the CO2 in, in a fuel like green methanol. And uh, the, the European uh, policymakers agreed on that, so the Commission, Parliament. And so what we have is... Uh, up until 2040, any CO2 is okay. So that's kind of what they agreed on. And then beyond that, you would need to be either unavoidable process or you need to be biogenic. But for now, their argument is because there is so much CO2 that's kind of going into the atmosphere that we're not decarbonizing all of those sectors. For those um, sectors, you can capture the CO2 and use it and it'll qualify as a, as a renewable fuel of non-biological origin. That's what they call it. Interesting. So... As I'm thinking about a project like yours in the U.S., in a post-Inflation Reduction Act world, I'm sort of like uh, slightly boggled at the 
number of tax credits <laughs> or, or subsidies that you could rack up with this. You could get tax credits for building the renewables, tax credits for green hydrogen, which are substantial. I think there's tax credits for using the CO2. I think there's tax credits for the e-fuels. Like every piece of this is going to get money showered on it from the IRA. So, so A, I'm wondering whether that makes U.S. projects more attractive. I mean, it must. And whether, you, and whether you've been thinking about that. And two, just on a more general basis, how you think about subsidies and, and whether you need them and to what extent this business model relies on them. Yeah. We founded the, the company on the you know before the IRA before all these uh, policy and, and incentive mechanisms came out and we 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 founded it because we believe there to be a commercially viable proposition without it so we're not you know we didn't create a business uh, that relies on or, or is reliant on subsidies I don't think that would make for a very good business. <laughs> um, well, there there are plenty of them. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But I mean, obviously now for us, what this means is it's, it's kind of accelerated our trajectory. So we can do things much faster and uh, basically just get going. And, and obviously we'll, we can't not go for them because it'll make us less competitive because our competitors are. In terms of which ones exactly, I mean, we take quite an opportunistic approach. So obviously in the US, you know, we'll, we'll try to play into the, uh, the tax credits. The, the extent to which you can, I don't know what I would call double dip in the sense that, you know, get benefits from the US credits and then, you know, export your fuel to Europe and then get more benefits there from, you know, <laughs> yes. avoiding the EU ETS. Or I don't think that's entirely clear. I mean, I'd be quite personally as a, as a taxpayer, if, if I were, a, you know, a US taxpayer, I'd be a bit skeptical of that. And even as a European one, I, I'm not sure how comfortable I feel with, with importing US made fuel subsidized with US tax credits and then, you know, getting another whammy on, on top of that in Europe. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think that's that's all to be, you know, identified in, in, the, in Europe. Obviously, you've got the innovation funding. There's all the demand side measures, which uh, I think are much better. Like, for example, the, the renewable fuel quota, that's a very clean quota for ships where they just have to switch a certain share of their fuel to be green. And then you've got various other kind of incentive schemes, um, carbon contract for differences, which are meant to be, you know, a support mechanism for hydrogen production. And so, you know, we'll see. For us, uh, basically what it means is that our projects are even more viable than they were uh, a year and a half ago. Have you, I mean, have you done the math yet on a project with all the IRA subsidies? Because the green hydrogen tax credit is ginormous. Yeah. I mean, just to give you, so obviously we've done the math. Just to give you a, maybe cut some numbers. So the $3 per kilogram hydrogen tax credit translates to about $600 per ton of methanol. Huh. And just to give you a sense of, you know, fossil methanol, so methanol made from natural gas today. I mean, I haven't checked the latest numbers, but it, historically it's kind of traded at around $500 per ton. So that's only for your hydrogen. And then there, on top of that, there's potentially a CO2 credit, which again, the extent to which we can play into that, I don't know, but the, the CCU tax credit is, is $60 per ton of CO2. And in terms of when you translate that to methanol, you would get to around uh, 100. You, you multiply by 1.5. So again, it, it's a lot of, so, you know, you add it up, you get to like a $700 per ton of methanol tax credit compared to the, uh, the fossil price of 500. Is that enough to erase the delta with the fossil kind? Yeah, yeah, we'd, we'd be in the money for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would be wild to be on the market selling carbon-free methanol that is cheaper than the carbon kind. 
so that raises the question is what you're paying for, right? So, I mean, it's and that's where the, it's different in the US and in Europe. Like in, in the US, essentially, that, that's the, the mentality, right? You're not trying to sell some different product. You're just trying to sell the same product cheaper. And that's why you need these support schemes to make that work. Uh, whereas in Europe, you're essentially saying, well, it's green, so it's okay that it's more expensive, but you have to do it because it's green. So it's, it's kind of a different mentality than... than uh, yeah, there are more, more sticks in Europe and uh, we're all carrots over here in the US. Yeah. But I mean, from a developer and you know, financier's perspective, it's not clear which one is better um, because obviously with the, the renewables, the drawback in the States was that you know one year you had them, one year you didn't. Whereas in Europe, the, uh, the demand side signal meant that you had a very, very kind of fixed base load of demand. And, and, you know, right. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. So final question is just, it does seem like to some extent, this business model is a reaction not to technological factors, but to socioeconomic factors. So for instance, the limits of the grid and the slowness of getting on the grid, the slowness of interconnection, the lack of hydrogen pipelines. These are kind of bottlenecks or pressures that one can imagine easing over time, right? One can imagine the grid getting built out more. One can imagine green hydrogen. I don't know. I actually have trouble. <laughs> I actually have trouble imagining green hydrogen infrastructure being built, but who knows? It could happen. So I wonder, like, if those uh, became easier and there were less of pressure points, would some of the rationale for this business model go away? Yeah, I'm not sure if I fully agree with that statement, just from the perspective of, yeah, okay, there, there are challenges on the, with the incumbents and the pace that they're getting things done. But of, you know, for us, it's also a fundamentally, what is a more efficient way to run the energy system? It's not just, you know, because it's not being done, we need to find some loophole that, you know, can make it work. You know, fundamentally, you can ask the question, if you had a renewable energy system that was, or an energy system that was driven mainly by renewables, is it more efficient to overbuild your grid to run all that stuff intermittently. I mean, I've you know been part of grid planning sessions in, in Europe and when you've got capacity factors of solar of 15 to 20% and wind of 25 to 35%, you have to build an enormous grid to balance that. And, and by the time that you've um, actually built out the grid to kind of run your power system base load, your system, your balancing cost, you know, sometimes they call it balance of system, basically the cost of the, all the extra stuff to keep it running becomes quite excessive. So I think the a study by Imperial estimated that that cost would be, you know, 50 to, to 60 pounds per megawatt hour of just pure balancing costs. That's in addition to the renewable costs, which by the way, are a lot less cheap in Europe than they are in, uh, you know, Chile. And so you very quickly get to, you know, power prices, which are much higher than what we are paying today. And then you can wonder, wouldn't it be more efficient if you could import some of that cheap power, you know, put panels where it's sunny or, you know, put turbines where it's windy and import the power. And then also, I mean, the other thing is, you know, does it even make sense to try to aim for this type of base load supply driven system, or should we be running more flexible assets? And in many ways, what we've got is just a flexible asset, right? It's, it's a, an electrolyzer that follows the, the renewables. And so the benefit, the, the system benefit of an asset like that is, is quite big. So I, I don't think I fully agree with your, 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 you know, framing of the, the business model. I think there's more to it than just, it's a, a way to bypass all of the, the, the slow incumbent infrastructure, but it's definitely a good question. And I don't think anyone really knows the answer until we've tried both paths. So you think that the limits of Electrify Everything are more than just 
incidental or contingent. You think we're going to run into these balancing costs issues and it's going to make more sense to run more stuff on liquid e-fuels? Not for everything, obviously. You know, I wouldn't, I would never buy a, you know, a, a diesel car and then hope to ever be able to afford <laughs> e-diesel rather than a, a, an electric car. Right. So if, obviously there are, you know, time and place for everything. For certain sectors though, I definitely think, I mean, I'd rather fuel my ship or my airplane with with an e-fuel made in, you know, where renewables are cheap than to try to do that next to Heathrow Airport in London or something like that. Um, so <laughs> I, I think, you know, as always, it depends. And, uh, you know, we, we're very targeted in, in where we go. Like we're not looking to sell e-fuel to heat homes or, you know, do anything like that. Right. It, it's very targeted to the sectors which are hard to abate and don't have uh, other options. This has been uh, uh, super fascinating. I hope I hope listeners agree. I hope we haven't gone too far down the technical rabbit hole to, uh, and lost people. But I find this this is where all the sort of interesting issues in the energy world are hitting the ground, right? Like you're trying to actually do these things, and as as you said, when you start trying to actually do things, whole different challenges arise and whole different sort of uh, uh, questions arise about optimization and stuff like that. So. Super fascinating to walk through this with you. Thanks so much for coming on, Anthony. Thanks for having me, David. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.